Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts, from drug users and activists to academics, and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer, what could a better future hold? Garth, um, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Uh, for uh, some, uh, the name Garth Mullins probably requires no introduction. Um, however, for everyone else, uh, he is the host uh, slash drug war correspondent for the award-winning Crackdown podcast. Um, uh, the Crackdown podcast is, uh, explores uh, the violence of the drug war and what activists are doing to try to stop it and or change it. Um, blending Garth's positionality as a drug user with his skills as a journalist, Crackdown not only gives you the information on the impacts that prohibition has on drug users, it also makes you feel it. Uh, and he's a longtime uh, activist in Vancouver's downtown east side and is also currently a PhD student at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Garth, did I miss anything there? No, Alex, thanks. I actually don't live on the downtown east side. I live just outside of it. Um, but uh, certainly I've been involved in drug user activism for a long time. And Crackdown also, uh, like we want to thank you, Alex, for just being this resource for us for um, the last few years, last couple of years. Like um, we use a lot of research on the show and uh, stuff to do with research and sometimes chemistry. And I don't know, there's all these complex questions and you're always just at the other end of the slack, ready to um, answer our, our queries as we're trying to develop a script or an episode or something like that. And you come to the editorial board meetings to help, help support those two. So I just wanted to say that you're part of that family, you know, and um, we really appreciate your um, involvement. Yeah, oh, Thanks. so sweet. I've never heard my being terminally online be so um, positively des described. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's funny. It's a, this podcast is about imagining drug futures, right? And this is this is we're living it. Like these overlapping apocalyptic emergencies that are forcing us all to um, bunker down somewhere and get on a, a virtual presence with each other. That's that's science fiction, but now it just seems so normal and bland, you know, like science fiction is supposed to seem extreme and shiny and wow, but it's just like getting on a zoom call and having someone go, I don't know where the mute is, blah, blah, blah. It's just so banal, you know, <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's really, that's the, that's how I see capitalism unfolds. It's like the catastrophe is always worse, but it's also always boring, you know? Yeah. I guess, I guess there is like a degree of, um, you know, a degree of mundane uh, banality kind of to it as well. I, I think like at the beginning, everyone was super excited to be online. There's like, you know, this big jump to talks and all this kind of these like very democratizing um, um, of, of like the online space um, and lots of discussions of who got to, um, you know, this push to get people who don't normally um who aren't normally centered and talking um you know the ability to talk and, and there is kind of like a 
a futuristic aspect to it. But on the other hand, you know, that um, I think it, and thinking about our, our, our futures, the, the pandemic's also kind of shown how much being in a place is, uh, you know, incredibly important to our ability to, to organize and, uh, you know, share, um, you know, emotional struggles and also to like provide kind of care um, for each other. Um, like community building. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a different type of community building, right? Like, um, you know, I, I feel like I, I know so many people from, from online, like from drug Twitter, for example, mm-hmm. like, you know, all like everyone that we've talked to um, so far, you know, we've talked to Ryan Marino, um, you know, uh, and we've talked to Sheila Vicaria. They're both people that I've, I met through Twitter. I mean, I, I was involved with like Garth, you know, you and I were chatting on Twitter before I ever met you in person. Uh, you know, probably for like a, you know, a year or two. <laughs> um, and same with Claire. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is democratizing in a lot of ways. I've been able to reach out and speak to people that I never would have otherwise. And it's been really meaningful and allowed me to do like really great things for folks here. When in a lot of ways, we're kind of an island of resources, like we're isolated from others because there is limited like harm reduction resources and, and political will down here. So it's been really fantastic to be able to connect with people that are so far ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we, you know, wanted to kind of touch on uh, was uh, this kind of like this, this like if there's like a, an imagined future in crackdown, um, if you if you kind of see an imagined future in crackdown, um, you know it's a very present oriented um, uh, podcast uh, slash piece of journalism. But you know, it, part of any any activist project is you know imagining having some sort of sense of something you want to change and imagining a a, a future there. Um, and so I was wondering if that that ever kind of comes into your your thinking. Um, with the crackdown episodes. Sure. You know, we, we think of the drug war as a war, not a rhetorical war, like um, maybe Nixon or something, but it's really feels like a war. Um, there's political prisoners, people are dying. There's basically paramilitary occupations of neighborhoods. Um, there's enemies, there's clear enemies, you know, the cops, the people who maintain and enforce the law, they're our fucking enemy. Uh, and so like, it's no joke. So when I think about the war, I think about wars in history Wars often end with peace, you know, like there's a negotiated peace, a settlement and, or something like that, you know, surrender. I don't know. Uh, but also wars end in revolution, like a lot of wars end when, um, you know, say in 1917, that's how World War One ended in Russia. You know, uh, like there are um, dramatic overhauls of society that are provoked by wars. And this particular war has... Uh, the sort of central DNA of capitalism baked right into it. So it's not like it's like a little war about something off to the side. This is a war that comes from the heart of the system that we live under. So in Canada, you know, it was started in 1908 in a great um, upwelling of xenophobia and racism. That was uh, the politics of the day, you know, to exclude uh, immigrants from China and Japan, you know, led to a race riot here in Vancouver, which itself led to 
high officials from the government finding out, oh my goodness, there's opium there. We better outlaw that. Uh, and and that was not um, any accident. You know, they were outlawing opium as a as a weapon to um, you know control people to uh, support the politics of exclusion. And that's been Canada from the beginning. Canada has always dreamed of itself as uh, a nation for the Aryan people, for white people. Our first prime minister said this proudly in speeches. You know, we have lots of prime ministers who've supported this idea, who legislated this idea. So it's like we got to put up these big walls to stop people from coming in. And the people who are already here, uh, we built institutions. You know, Canada built institutions to um, break those nations or steal the kids you know, residential schools that functioned uh, as a weapon of colonialism and white supremacy for most of the country's history. And then also like uh, mental asylums and jails. These all look the same. Residential schools, jails, all these are like these big three-story Victorian, horrible, haunted looking buildings that were put all over this country before there was anything else. You know, they were sometimes the biggest the biggest building, the biggest thing for hours and hours around, you know, in the middle of pastoral farmland or, or forest or whatever, you'd find this big, horrible building, you know, sitting atop a tiny fishing village in a tiny, tiny island off the BC coast, a giant three-story Victorian monster with monsters who worked there. That's the dystopia in which the drug war was founded. So what is, what is the future that we dream of? It is tearing up the drug war by the root. And to me, the roots are in capitalism. So when we end the drug war, when we overthrow that, we're also changing a lot about the DNA of this place because the drug war functions to control people and uh, drugs have often function in a way to, um, you know, to help people participate more effectively in production. You know, like we started having amphetamines in, in, uh, in World War II as a, as a major industrial activity, you know, produced and distributed to pilots for long missions. You know, people use them on assembly lines to keep up with the ever-increasing pace of production under capitalism. You know, benzodiazepines were like the mother's little helper of the suburbs in the 50s. We've always had these sort of narcotic responses to social organization of capitalism. And then the response to that, the drug war, you know, as, as a means of controlling people, as a means of disciplining certain communities. And I, I think that ending the drug war really means a fundamental challenge to white supremacy and capitalism. Like, I think you can't really do it effectively without that. That's awesome. I almost wanted to clap. That was just so like well stated. And as an American, I just wanted to be quiet and listen. But that's I mean, the echoes are so consistent um, in other like similar countries to Canada because it's the same route, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Like, if you would agree with me, like if you're, if it kind of really boils down to like white supremacy and capitalism, well, that's not just the U.S. It's not just Canada. <laughs> it's so many places. Well, uh, that's really well stated. It's actually funny. It's great how we always get into history, like immediately when talking about uh -huh. the, the future, because my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> and uh, what's really it's never interesting, on purpose. Uh, well, one of one of the one of the Zoom talks that you know we were talking about this earlier about getting to see these talks you'd never get to see before. One of the, the Zoom talks that I I went to I watched the last time I was in in Toronto actually um, was uh, done by the I believe it was by the International Drug Policy Consortium and it was talking about like the racism inherent in the drug war. And there was this one activist slash lawyer from India who was uh, talking about how um 
um, how like it was actually like a, a, an anti-colonial effort that like brought in prohibition in India. Um, and if you think about it through the lens of the, the British empire, the British love selling opium, uh, you know, like recreational use, like medical <laughs> use, like what, whatever you want. Um, and, and so like, like this, um, it became part of this, um, this in some ways like anti-colonial struggle to prohibit um uh drugs and and so you end up like like you you end up seeing like really anti-drug responses like much more in like in canada british colony the united states you know former british colony um india uh british like you know british colony um jamaica uh uh had an incredibly intense like anti-drug um, law um south africa um you know all these countries like came to like prohibit and a lot of these are also apartheid states india is uh you know one of the one of the, one of the few that, that that is a little less true for but um you know there um there's kind of this weird um like anti or i don't want to say decolonial because that, that's not the right word but like, like anti kind of colonial bent to the um uh to to like the bringing in of prohibition kind of in various places around the world like uh the the united states and canada um during world war ii uh well mostly the united states but Can the, the, the canadian guy that like was is described by this one researcher as like the soulmate of um what's his name harry anslinger um who like a great they, guy. they convinced that um Anslinger like went and told the British and Dutch basically that they had to stop all of their opium, uh, like, you know, like colonization around like opium and force China to prohibit opium um, as part of their war funding to continue defending them during World War II, um, which was seen as part of um, uh, the, you know, like after World War II, you get this like, quote unquote, like decolonization um effort and so this was like approved by the u.s government like after they had like after anslinger had already kind of gone and done this um because it was kind of tied to this like you know the british empire and the dutch empire you know you all have to stop being empires now um and we're going to decolonize and make all of these new kind of states um oh by the way we're also going to make you now prohibit um prohibit drugs there. And so there's this, like, she, she wanted to remind us that there's this really complicated kind of history around, um, yeah, colonization and, um, you know, like resistance in various different countries and the story's not necessarily the same kind of any everywhere. It's true um, in Canada too. Really yeah. You know, it's true in Canada too. Like first nation communities have passed uh, bank council resolutions to try and ban alcohol and drugs in the communities, you know, and, and then wrestle with the sort of bootlegging that comes afterwards, but as an anti-colonial response, you know, as a, as a, um, you know, people have, have seen, Oh, we used to have this giant territory and we used to be the governors of it. And then these other, other people would come in, steal it, force us onto this postage stamp size place uh, the alienation and the dislocation trauma everybody feels, well, you can kind of uh, put a lid on that with some substance, then that substance becomes the problem. Then, you know, people are trying to uh, react to a set of circumstances that they didn't choose, you know, at least at least in communities that are passing those kind of resolutions. Um, you know, in, in Canada, before there was even the 1908 Opium Act, there was an amendment to the, the Indian Act, which is this 
large historic piece of legislation that um, the government uses to micromanage the lives of indigenous people in this country. And among it was that it was illegal to be intoxicated if you're indigenous, and that included intoxicated by opium preparation. So I, I agree, it is a complex relationship. And, and capitalism, first and foremost, is about um, the production and, and distribution of commodities and the accumulation of wealth at the top. So that's really the most important thing. So there can be capitalism, I believe, without prohibition. Like that is that is possible. But I I look for something more. You know, I believe that we should be able to um, tear up those the the terrible um, ingredients, the the DNA that gets to make the drug war that still would reside in capitalism. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we talked about, because she, she'll um, in our episode with uh, Sheila Bakari, she's been doing this um, work around abolitionist social work. Um, and I, I guess, um, you know, following, uh, following what you just, you know, brought up, um, you know, what do you kind of see as these, you know, future um uh like crossovers and um and there's a word i'm missing here but like these future kind of crossovers between these like anti-colonial or decolonial or, or anti-capitalist kind of movements and like the the drug policy movement or the anti-drug war movement Fuck, Alex, I don't have to look for the future of that. That's my everyday. That's what we do, yeah. right? Like, Vandu has a relationship with the Defund 604 network. You know, we're, we're part of that. Uh, Black Lives Matter is part of that. Um, we work on uh, defunding the police and abolitionist projects together because they impact the material conditions we live under in the present. You know, that uh, the fact is that everybody in Vandu, like everybody in that building has served time at some point, myself included. And so we're against prisons, you know, as a as a solution to anything. So like it is it's it's just part of the the way that you organize struggle and and also that um, it's solidarity, right? Solidarity isn't just like a nice idea or that we should be kind to each other. It's that we can win better if we fight together. Is that um, if you help me with my struggle, it's more likely to win. So I'll help you with yours. Uh, and often our struggles intersect and we have common interests, you know, so like those, those kind of um, across the struggles are, are really important. And so Vandu has sent contingents to be in um, solidarity, solidarity actions, uh, supporting, you know, wet sweat and protests and blockades um, and, and like all kinds of indigenous solidarity actions like uh, my friend Wade Crawford, he he's uh, he died last year, but he was um, he's from Six Nations and he was uh, in the Oka uh, blockade of the Mercier Bridge in solidarity with the the Oka standoff, you know, in in the early '90s um, in Kanasatage over uh, the I don't know the town of Oka wanted to make a golf course in in people's in the in the people's pines there and. And uh, he, when he came to Vancouver and came to Van Du like 10 years ago, he really brought that spirit of connecting the struggles with him. And we all, we all learned, we all understood because of Wade Crawford's activism, the better connections between, um, you know, sovereignty, indigenous sovereignty and the drug war and why uh, indigenous people are overrepresented in, you know, the, the overdose deaths, the prison populations, the people that the cops search and card and harass, all that stuff. Um, you know, we we grew to have a better understanding of that. And it's because someone like Wade was 
connecting the struggles. And just as uh, uh, Tanya Aganaba is is connecting the Black Lives struggle uh, to um, the drug user liberation movement, you know, and it's like we're all finding each other. And and Gabrielle Peters is now sort of been reaching out to me and I've been talking to her a bunch over the last year and we've been better connecting and understanding the points of connection between disability struggles and, and drug user liberation. So it's like these things the the future I imagine is just like that kind of struggle, but better where we all are um, really have institutionalized those connections into our organizations, you know, where they're, where they're held in human relationships, but also in these uh, more organizational connections to each other where we're able to mobilize large numbers of people in support of each other's struggles, where we're able to mobilize and share resources better. And uh, it just, it makes it harder for our enemies to divide us if we're, uh, if we've got that kind of wall of solidarity. I feel like one of the most future oriented things that I've seen um, coming out of this space has been the distribution of, of the, of drugs from the drug user elimination, drug user liberation front. Sorry. Very different. Um, <laughs> quite. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. We already like have, we already have the drug user elimination front. It's also really called do. the government of Canada. It really, you know, that and was very Freudian US. right now. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not behind that, but uh, sorry. Sorry for that hilarious Freudian moment. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's one of the most forward and, and future oriented things that I've seen in this space in a really long time. And in, in that it's, well, no, but it's one of the most, probably most visible and accessible things. It's one of the things that people are like reaching out to me to ask me about that don't pay any attention to the space. I've got like friends from college who will send me a DM and they're like, holy fuck, I saw that they're giving away cocaine for free and they're just handing it out to people. And they're just doing that. Tell me more about that. What the hell is that? So it's, it's been, um, I'll, I'll say this, that it's been really, really tremendous in kind of forcing people to, to look forward to like what things could be and to also address a very urgent unmet need. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, it's funny. Every time we talk about the future, you start in the past, but it's the same with this. You know, the um, movement around here has used civil disobedience and lawbreaking for a long time. So we have, uh, you know, the safe injection site, the first in North America called Insight has just turned 18 this week. Um, and it wouldn't be here had people not opened unsanctioned illegal safe injection sites first and said, come on, government, come on, cops, go and arrest us for it. You know, either shit or get off the pot, open your own or shut ours down, like do something. And uh, so eventually it provoked the, the, the powers that be into uh, permitting uh, a sanctioned, albeit a, a kind of a compromise um, safe injection site. And then that took another, you know, uh, many years before we were able to reproduce that and get them across the country, which again, we did by opening them without permission uh, at the beginning of the officially declared overdose crisis in Vancouver, which was in 2016. Uh, and, and, you know, I have seen that kind of civil disobedience law breaking even before that in the distribution of needles. The first brand new needle that was ever handed to me was in um, in San Francisco in the Tenderloin or, or just uh, by City Hall. There was a big uh, tent encampment there where mm -hmm. I was staying. And these people from, I think it's called Prevention Point 
Um, they used to smuggle around. This is in the first wave of the HIV crisis. They used to smuggle around needles. They were totally illegal as hell. And they used to smuggle them around apparently in a baby carriage to avoid the cops <laughs> figuring out what they're doing. And so these people risked their Brilliant. liberty to hand me a new syringe Ooh. and they didn't give me any like, uh, you got to go to a 12 step meeting or blah, blah, blah lecture. They just said, Hey, be safe, brother. You know, like, and I was just like, Holy shit. And there was yeah. not the word harm reduction or anything, but I understood the power of civil disobedience because all kinds of social movements, all kinds of marginalized people have broken unjust laws to further their own law in the past. And, and it may be this kind of arm twisting of government, maybe the only thing that changes history. Um, but uh, in, in the case of the drug user liberation front last year, uh, the pandemic was hitting and we were in a meeting and we're just like, how do we, how do we jump to the next chapter of this? What is the insight fight of this generation? And we had been for years talking about how would we do this? How would we just distribute drugs ourselves? And uh, a couple of people really had the energy to take, take this going. So we formed this organization called the Drug User Liberation Front. We were very specific about the wording. We didn't want to use any wording that could be taken over by the state or contaminated or that was any <laughs> that was in mm -hmm. any way sounded like an NGO or anything. So we borrowed, you know, front from those uh, really radical kind of groups in the 70s and that sort of thing. And then uh, we've done four times since then, just obtained through the dark web, uh, heroin, coke and meth and opium where we couldn't distribute heroin, we couldn't find it. And then we test it to make sure this isn't going to be uh, full of fentanyl and benzos and kill people. And, um, and then we distribute it to, uh, you know, people in the neighborhood and more and more to like sort of a known, like the Vandu membership, for example, you know, we, we give it out so that we know the, the people who are using it. We know that people know what they're doing, that they're not going to, uh, it's not going to be their first time. They're not opioid naive or any of that stuff. Um, you know, and that's to be safe and respond to critics and stuff. But, you know, this is at the level of a symbolic action. This is to show it's possible. We know we don't have the money or the supply chain to actually replace people's daily use, but we're trying to show the world it's really not that difficult. It's really not that complicated. We would prefer to find... Um, pharmaceutical versions, you know, like diacetylmorphine uh, made in a factory or a lab somewhere or whatever under supervised and sterile conditions and stuff rather than buy it off the dark web, right? So we're basically just taking drugs that are already in the system, in circulation, like in the dark web, and then uh, testing them and then labeling them very clearly so people know what they are um, in, in little boxes that have our name and logo on them and say uh, what the what the testing showed, you know, you know, like what percent heroin, what percent uh, caffeine or whatever, if, if there's some in there and, uh, and then giving them to people to show uh, what's possible. And I mean, that's really just kind of like the baseline level of safety labeling that anyone should expect on any drug, like whether that's something that you buy at a store or something off the dark web. Um, and it's, I think it's also really telling that this stuff exists and you're getting really pure samples it looks like like from the photos that i've seen it looks like they're really pure and the only reason that they're having to be sold over the dark web is prohibition mm -hmm. and it's just makes it so much more complicated than it has to be I anybody to say, anybody can do this anywhere yeah. right like anywhere you just got to get up money so you can you can raise it off i don't know wherever you're <laughs> going to raise money from or or people can pool their money and then they can buy this and then what you have to judge for your own self is 
do you want to do it like we did loud and proud and be like, come on and arrest us uh, and then give us the court challenge that we're actually looking to fight um, or, or to do it on the down low? Like in Vancouver, we, we email the cops and say, hey, we're going to be giving out drugs to people at this location in this time. And then, of course, we have a band and a barbecue and hundreds of people so that it's not a simple matter for the police to roll in and arrest people. They they right. wouldn't be able to do that very easily. And we we even approach um, high profile people like a city councilor, Gene Swanson, handed the drugs to us last time. You know, so uh, we're, we're and, and she was willing to risk her. Oh, yeah. She's been an activist in the neighborhood for 40 years and was willing to uh, face the backlash from the right wing city council members and all that stuff. There's this idea that we could only do it in Vancouver because Vancouver is this or BC is this very left wing place, but it's not. Um, the secret to understanding Canada and Canadian politics is that is that we're often um, conservative, libertarian, leave me alone, hard work, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But we're just very polite and passive aggressive about it. And we like to dress it up in progressive language. So, um, you know, we have a real estate tycoon billionaire who's making the world a worse place for everybody, but he sells yoga pants. You know, that's that's kind of how we do in Vancouver. We'll make we have most of the world's mining corporations are headquartered here in our downtown. But the people who are the CEOs of those places are probably getting uh, oat milk in their coffee or something at, at their coffee break. So it's, this is how we do it. We like to wrap ourselves in a little um, new age kind of bullshit sphere to kind of uh, <laughs> make it harder for people to criticize. But really, once you see through that, you realize that Vancouver has um, the same kind of reactionary knee jerk tendencies, that the cops can be just as bad. They just like to have a, a PR shop that talks nice. You know, so once you decode that, you can see the real politics underneath. And it's also helpful for people somewhere else to know just because they have a local backwards reactionary mayor or something, they can still make moves in their town. I feel like that's probably true for a lot of places that are kind of ostensibly labeled as very liberal. The same is true here in Austin, for sure. We this is also like going to be helpful for people who are trying to understand Biden. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Claire. <laughs> no, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, yeah. Oh, for Lord's sakes. Yeah. Well, what was the thing yesterday? Oh, yeah. So they announced that um, that he's been getting all this blowback from the photos of of CBP agents whipping people, like especially like the Haitian asylum seekers mm. with horse reins. Oh, is this and the horse thing? Yes. And you know what the answer that they came up with was that they're not allowed to use horses anymore. I was like, okay, of that image, the horse was the one thing that wasn't the problem. It was the rider. (laughs) I was like, the the escape horse. But I feel like that's kind of yet, you know, another example of, you know, he's, it's just symbols. It's just the optics and that's it. And they just stop at optics. So it doesn't actually make much of a difference at all. If the the people that were riding those horses are still doing it. Anyway. And it's funny, you know, in, in Canada, we have, uh, we have very active uh, border control as well. And they have in the past uh, gotten far away from the border and gotten on the bus and been around in the city looking for people, you know, using the transit system as a way to find undocumented people. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just Canada likes to do that sort of, we don't like to, with the exception of some provinces, um, we don't like to toot the horn about how reactionary we can be. We like to wear a little disguise, you know, like wear a little um, progressive raincoat. We're three reactionary guys in a progressive raincoat, you know, <laughs> and two of them are Jason Kenney and Doug Ford. So it's just like, we, we just roll like that. 
feel like it makes people feel better about themselves to be able to kind of cling to a label like that. Mm -hmm. That's why it's hard for them to be honest about what's actually happening on the ground. It's like wherever I've lived, because I lived in like Amsterdam, right? And I've lived in Canada, you know, like, like the United States is always like the, um, the excuse you give for doing like things that are quote unquote, like less evil, like, and it's, it's not like, like Canada's not like much more of a progressive place. In fact, like, like, and in some ways, like, you know, like the, the critical mass of, of protesting in the U S is like, can be kind of inspiring. And like, you know, this is happening like in a, you know, a limited kind of space but you know like some of the like the mass movements that we saw like last year in the united states i thought were like you know incredibly um you know like i wish could get that many people on the street like you know well i'm glad that Um, we can inspire you in some ways Um, because it's like yeah like there is that kind of progressive um you know the the progressive veneer of of canada and canadian politics um um, it's, it's a really cunning method of ruling and governing people and and uh, have and running an economy. You know, w- this country was founded for the sole purpose of resource extraction. The first resource was beaver fur to make a fancy hats for rich people in England. That was the purpose of this country. Um, obviously, the nations that have lived here since time immemorial before had a much more legitimate purposes. But this is what uh, Canada was officially founded for. And uh you know, the idea of having a progressive veneer of instead of saying, fuck you, saying, oh, that's interesting. Hmm, let me help you. Let's have a meeting about that. Let's have a little consultation about that. It's actually really effective for splitting up opposition because a lot of people do fall for that. Um, it's, a, it's a more nuanced kind of divide and rule. And it's for um, a government that has been probably militarily weaker. So it's like you got to weaponize conversation and governance and those softer forms of power to divide people amongst themselves so they're not united against you. And I just think Canada has been uh, better at that and, and effective at sort of um, glad handing and, and uh, pitting people against each other since its founding. Uh, just to go back um, to the, the safe supply um, uh uh, thing one of the like and uh not like i don't want to say critiques but like one of the like the, like one of the frustrations that i saw from like a, a drug policy person like in terms of the the you know this discussion around safe supply that I, i'm sensitive to um was around the topic of like safe for who um you know and, and like dolph is like a you know a small organization again you know you don't have like the capacity to you know like ensure fair trade coke or fair trade heroin but to, to think of it maybe from a more um um positive kind of angle um you know we, we've talked a lot about the connection of like these inner kind of movements how do um what do you kind of how do you kind of imagine connecting you know with some of these you know other struggles that are maybe going on in places like mexico or in uh colombia um around um you know these um these substances in terms of safe supply well that's a good that's a good way to imagine the future right like there's people who are producing crops uh, like coca and opium and stuff that people around the world really need and they're facing like local and international violence um against them and they're having they're they're not seeing most of the 
most of the surplus that gets created in that. Most of the profits get skimmed off in between. And so more direct relationships between producers and consumers would benefit everybody. And I, you know, I think people have done things like that with coffee, right? But it's prohibition really disrupts the ability to make those kind of um, arrangements. And so the the future that I would imagine is like the the way that um, some co-ops have, you know, co-ops of coffee producers have relationships with shops or distributors in the West, you know. Um, and I think we even want to improve on it so that we're not um, creating like an export only economy where you can't get a decent cup of coffee in Costa Rica because it's, uh, you know, it's only an export crop. You'd want people to be able to have access to it um, easily too. So it'd be, you, you wouldn't want it to just be a purely um, a market driven solution minus prohibition. You know, I think you'd want to, you want to have um, instead of just like uh you want a buyer's club or a compassion club in the West to have a political component to it and a relationship to struggles of producers in the global South as well. I think there's people like uh, Zara Snap who know way more about this than me, but uh, like, I think that from the international perspective, it's a, uh, it's, it's difficult for us to reach there under prohibition right now because prohibition enables all kinds of state and non-state actors to use sanctioned and unsanctioned violence to disrupt any any ability to do that, and I imagine the transition would be um, would be bumpy, but like that's that's where we have to get to. I feel like that's a really great way to compare it to because there's also like environmental issues that I think come up with, especially when we're talking about uh, like crops that take a lot of land, like coca. Like I remember reading like recently that there's more arable land um, like used for coca production than anything people eat and that there's all this like environmental concern because people are being pushed to kind of slash more forest to grow it. Um, But again, like if people were able to like kind of freely negotiate with each other and connect directly like that without threat of legal action, then that would be a lot more achievable to like work together for sustainability. And here's the thing about that. Uh, two major reasons that these um, products like opium and um, coca get pushed in, out into these communities are things like Operation Condor, which for people who don't know, was this um, crop eradication strategy in Mexico in, I believe, like the 1980s um, that used uh, uh, glyphosate, which is like a, a DDT-like substance that like um, and basically, yeah, it's Roundup and basically poisoned um, the land that people were growing um, poppy on. Like there were uh, drug traffickers were uh, picked up and non-drug traffickers were picked up and tortured um, by the U.S. government. Um, and uh, with uh, Plan Columbia um, in uh, 2004, 2015, like the same thing happened. And so, yes, like, you know, maybe like Coca, you know, like. People like the reason that people move further and further kind of out and are involved in these kind of processes is because we're literally making the land that they live on um, like on, you know, like they can't grow food uh, there in the first place. Um, you know, maybe they, they don't have roads that can actually bring the food, like, you know, you try and say, we'll switch your cocoa plants for, you know, you're growing tomatoes and, and stuff like that. And then, but there's no roads to actually get your, you know, crops to, um, to market. Right. Um, whereas, you know, like the, 
the um, drug trafficker, you know, like, you know, they're specialized in getting your thing from point A to point B. Um, and again, yeah, th this would probably be like our conversation that we like have with uh, uh, someone like Sanho Tree um, yeah. or uh, with, uh, with with Zara. Um, but it, it it's just like, a, you know, um, I think like a an aspect of, you know, making this kind of future or making making a better world to kind of keep in, in mind. Because uh, this is the argument that always gets thrown around. Like, you know, when like you want they you want to do like the good cop uh, angle to why drugs should be illegal um, uh, is like the look oh, like, you know, like there's like all of this, you know, violence like attached to the trade. And then like we don't talk about the fact that the reason that there's all of this violence is because like, you know, we're actively going in and, you know, making violence where there was none before. Yeah. I mean, crops get grown um, where it's, you know, where the climate's right for them, but really that's not the most important uh, condition. It's the, it's not the physical environment, it's the political environment. You know, it's where, states have reached some kind of accommodation with the producers or with the you know whatever organized crime is is running the producers um so that it can occur right like crops can be grown in a lot more places than they currently are being grown in like you you can't only grow poppies in afghanistan or something like that you know like you can grow poppies here there's a questions about where in the world it's most efficient uh, climactically to grow but um, the the biggest uh, rate limiter is the political environments, right? Like most political environments like Canada, prohibition and um, the fact that you have uh, so many levels of government and eyes on and, and police per, per population means it's very hard to spend acres and acres and acres and acres growing uh, or using this as a mass solution. Although people have cultivated lots of illegal crops in Canada. Um, we just have prohibition interfering with the ability to decide where's the best places in the world to do it. Who are the producers who want to do it? How do you get the benefits most to those producers? How do you take care of the consumers at the same time? And uh, how do you reduce the environmental footprint of all of that? You know, like we, we should be having a, um, an environmental assessment process that is agreed upon internationally to that any producer would have to go through just like any other, um, any other kind of project, you know, should should have and then the last thing to be concerned about is that um drug production has moved like so many other forms of social organization and production from agrarian to industrial now you know so well at least in opioids like a lot of uh, the move to fentanyl means that instead of using a field you're using a lab and um that's that's something that probably we want to at least make a choice instead of make it this kind of economic mandate or this economic um, requirement that because of prohibition, it becomes easier to make something in a lab than in a giant field. It becomes easier to move small precursors around the world instead of like large bulky um, opium or poppies or whatever, you know? So it's like, that's, that's going to take a, a wider level organization, but you have to have you have to start with states that are able to peel back prohibition to create landing places for these. And so as soon as you get as soon as you get a producing state and a consumer state that both have some level of um, prohibition rolled back, then you can make the room for the first bilateral agreement, maybe between producers and consumers. 
Yeah, that was what I was going to say next, actually, is that I feel like kind of the the rise and the ascendancy of synthetics is actually an interesting way to kind of address some of this issue. We're talking about land space is that, you know, well, how much of this can we shift to like a synthetic context or we're not having to have this argument and it's kind of more contained. Uh, we, we wanted to talk about the... Um... Uh, the drugs of the future um, and uh, you know like maybe like why um, you know so, so, like a lot of these like you know drugs like that we tend to see in like you know science fiction we're, we're going to cover we're, we're going to play a game after um, which um, we have no title for yet but I'm thinking of calling it um, drug of choice uh, 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 but, um, yeah, like why, like, you know, like what, what does it kind of say that to that, like, why, what does it kind of say that like, you know, every single drug is, you know, negatively kind of, they're always like bad drugs in science fiction. Like, you know, it's like, uh, um, like used for evil. Yeah, well, in like the most like uh, you know, like uh, or even in like like regular TV shows, like the like sodium pentothal is like the yes, like the the truth serum drug. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, I've like never a, seen it in action, but I don't think it works the way that they show it. It's just like a barbiturate. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't imagine designing a drug to just make people honest that that's not a side effect of. It's Even an unrealistic like, depiction, kind of a hyper, hyper idealized depictions too. Yeah. I think I don't know science fiction well enough to think of examples where it's um, where drugs are are thought of positively. You know, I William S. Burroughs's Naked Lunch has like they mush up like giant centipedes into <laughs> and snort them or do them, and uh, and it makes the typewriter melt and do funny things. I think I I don't really remember, but um, it seems to me there's a creative component of that. Uh, but yeah, like the things I think of are um, like Ketracel White in one of the Star Trek franchises. There's these soldiers that are bred for some evil purpose by somebody and they're and they're they've got spacesuits or like armor or whatever that's got this drug um, like a little pipeline of this drug Ketracel white that like injects into them so they can be better super soldiers. And I think that's kind of a uh, analogous to, you know, people taking stimulants in world war two or, or the army handing out stimulants or the air force or whatever. And, you know, the Soma sounds pretty good in brave new world, all this Huxley's novel, but of course, like there's all these negative consequences to it. And um, substance D and Philip K. Dix, a scanner darkly. That's just like substance death. That's just the worst. And then uh, these are just the ones I was thinking of. There's some in doom. I don't know what substance they do in, in Dune. Sorry. Um, I can't remember what that's called. Spice. Uh, aren't they, isn't it called melange or something like that? Aren't they mining yeah. spice? And that's, that's all the spices for is for getting high off of. Yeah. I, you know what? I've actually never seen, it was like my, I, I've never seen Dune. I, I I I I will have to watch it. I, I've been watching I've been watching sci-fi that people have recommended um, uh, from the from Twitter. 
So I watched, I watched Logan's run. I didn't see the drug that someone else mentioned, but there, this was like the one time I saw like a positive drug uh, thing where it's like, you know, the, the Logan's run is like um, this so-called utopian society where everyone dies at the age of 30. And like, you've got this weird, like, so you, you can have like as much fun as you want, um, you know, up until 30. And then like this little like glowing crystal in your hand, which changes color as your age just starts flashing. Um, and, uh, you know, then you get like, like hopped up on, on some stuff. And like the final ceremony is like, you know, you doing this kind of like interpretive dances, like things go into, um, as like, you know, you kind of spin through this like tornado thing, except not everyone wants to die at 30 shocker. Um, <laughs> and so the, the runners are like the people who like, you know, refuse um, to, um, to do this, but the, the drug that they had in it was this weird purple mist that I don't think ever gets a name. Um, and it's like, it's just for the purpose of like having orgies. Um, and I was like, yeah, that sounds like, you know, like whatever it is, like it, it looks like it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's, it's one of the few maybe positive uh, uh, drug, drug examples. It's like the, it's like the space poppers or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it lasts for a while, doesn't it? Uh, it's Can not particularly time? clear. Okay. So they like there's like a scene where they run through the you know like every every sci-fi future like because it's like you know they're all in, done in the 70s so it's like everyone's sci-fi future is just like orgies all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Actually, this is a this is a, it's something that's been bothering me, um, and it's just like the inability to imagine the future that we seem to have arrived at in the since the millennium you know in the 21st century is that lots of the stuff lots of the just the mainstream popularized views of the future are older views of the future you know like every decade or every generation has its own way to imagine the future so you know in the 50s it was like the jetsons and very you know clean and post hyper modern and all that you know in the in the 70s it changes in the 80s and the 90s but it seems like we are now into this time of recycling ideas about the future. So like uh, shows like the walking dead, that's, that's very old, you know, George A. Romero zombie ideas of the future. Um, lots of the, lots of the science fiction is like better CGI ideas of the future that have come from previous generations. And so I'm looking for the thing that's like, what is the shocking view of the future? Good, bad drugs or not. It's from this time right now, not just like a, a retread or a retroversion of of some previous generation's idea of the future. And I think there's something deeply um, material in the explanation for this is that we have come to this time where the actual future is very difficult to imagine. And, and so like imaginary futures become, you know, you start to search for the past, you start to recycle. And we're also in this cultural moment where there's plenty of recycling of old culture going on. Like um, music is very referential to the last few decades of the 20th century. Like we're into endless Marvel superhero retread movies. <laughs> like there, there's a lot of this going on, but it's like it in any moment where you try to imagine the future, um, even the climate dystopia futures that, that people do imagine are often you find like their antecedents in science fiction in the late 20th century. And, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on with that, but it's, um, you know, it's something that Mark Fisher has written a lot about, like the, the inability to imagine the future is, is part of the 
changes that have really taken hold of society since Thatcherism and, and all that in the, in the eighties and nineties. And um, you know what? I think there's something to that, but I think we have to really make an effort to shake that off and think, okay, let's, let's imagine this future. Let's from the previous conversation, let's imagine that we, we outgrow capitalism. And I think that that's not unreasonable because societies have organized themselves a bunch of different ways on the planet. Capitalism is pretty young by giant um, measures of history. So it's entirely conceivable that we find a different form of social organization and that people um, leave the planet. You know, there's, there's exploration of the solar system and maybe beyond. And so imagine that people aren't traumatized and alienated all the time, but they're still doing dangerous and scary things. They're far apart from their families. They're also in zero G. Um, you know, they're doing complicated jobs that maybe have to have them stay up for a long time. And maybe there's an alienation that comes with that. So maybe the material conditions that drive drug use right now, good, bad, and different, um, they change a lot and morph, but maybe there's something that people do that feels really great in microgravity or something like that. Or maybe there's some drug that people use um, the CRISPR, the gene splicer thing to invent that really addresses that feeling of planetary homesickness. Like you just have this desperate yearning for the green, like moist air of earth and you're far away in a tin can or on someplace with no atmosphere and you just want to feel that feeling. And there's some drug that gives you that, that treats that feeling of planetary homesickness. You know, that's like, that's the kind of drug future imagining that we have to break out of this, this weird trap that we're in this zombie, um, you know, the walking dead old, old ideas of the future trap that we're in break out of the constraints of capitalism and really imagine what is it like to get high on a intergalactic generational spaceship? You know, like, I don't fucking know, but that's kind of the, the thing I'd like to try and imagine. That's something that they actually touched upon. They didn't get to it with drugs, but that's something that they touched upon in Interstellar. Um, so I'm trying to think of like more, maybe like recent examples, but, you know, these people that were spending years and years of like perceived time anyway, um, off of the planets were becoming really anxious and stressed at just sitting there in this cold, dark vacuum. Like you said, like a tin can, just knowing that the vacuum of space is on the other side of it. So they were, they found like the best thing that they could do is listen to like the sound of rain and frogs croaking, like little fun reminders of earth that gave them, you know, that nice burst of neurotransmitter to feel a little bit better. Oh yeah. Um, because yeah, that was something that was really eroding uh, the people that were on this mission. And in fact, it was like a major plot point that one of them just was so incredibly homesick and so incredibly sick for connection with other people that he ended up sabotaging the entire thing just to get people to come to him. And so he could see people again to hug someone and talk to someone. Um so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great point. Like if we're going to expand more off of our own planet and explore other stars, eventually maybe explore interstellar travel, even though that's quite far off. Yeah, we're good. This is going to be have to be a completely new thing to address. Like one of the things we were taught in schools that, you know, if you want to study physiology, for example, like past bachelors, you should go study ways to help people maintain physiology in space, like in zero gravity, because that's a huge limitation at this point. We can't send humans off of the planet for that long without them facing bad effects. We're going to need to figure out ways to maintain them both physically and emotionally. So 
Um, yeah, I think that's a really cool new frontier to think about in terms of drugs. There's this, um, I, I I haven't read this article, but there's this um, I, part of this talk by uh, Sylvia Federici, who's like a, like a, a Marxist, uh, you kind of feminist kind of scholar. She has a lot of uh, cool, uh, Calvin the Witch is her, her famous book on how the, the witch trials were really important to the foundation of capitalism. Um, and uh, she talks about how like all of our, our visions of like, like the, the like this eighties imaginary of like of space in the future is this, um, uh, is like is like the recreation of the factory, um, you know that worker like it, the expanse is like this right like the workers are confined into small quarters where like you know you you get up you know by the the clock and you you go and you do your job and then like you go back to your tiny little cell, uh, you know your little home and like that's what. Uh, your life just becomes this like factory in space. Uh, you know, our bodies are really not built for um, space and all these like kind of capitalist, like imaginaries of, you know, future space travel, like end up being like, yeah, like how do we make bodies, you know, go as far as they, you know, possibly can, um, right? Like the, and the, the expanse, which is like a, I guess like a capitalist, but like in, in, in the future kind of show, mm-hmm. like, I love that like, show. You know, the the like the the there's like a couple of dr- different drug scenes but like the the one i was thinking of is like you know when they have to go um uh when the, the ships have to go faster like they you get pumped with like these like steroids or whatever in order to keep yourself like conscious um or there's like these drugs um for um people getting used to living in um a regular uh, G like atmosphere on planets that like the, the belters have to take in order for their bones to um, yeah. uh, properly build um, again. Um, it reminds me of the drugs that we give to climbers going up Everest so that they don't literally die from the <laughs> lack of atmospheric pressure. Yeah, it's, it's definitely true. Like I think a lot of people get, or a lot of astronauts get motion sick when the, when the sudden accelerations or decelerations happen. And that's, I think what they're talking to at an extreme point in the expanse, you know, people lose bone density and all that sort of stuff. So I'm sure there'll be like, if we really do this as a species, there'll be, have to be a lot of research and, and new drugs to compensate, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and some of that too, like you, you pulled up another example, Alex, from, um, was it Battlestar Galactica, right? Where they had like really carefully planned and designated ways to allow people to kind of take breaks and, and experience things that mimicked like more they, of a terrestrial context, right? Yeah, they do this in Star Trek too. There's like the the Cloud Nine um, oh, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, vacation um, uh center which in Bowser galactica um you only get like a couple of glimpses of it but yeah it's just like bougie it's like where you know like this like fancy place where people can you know go and have breaks and um there's like a um, this whole kind of um there's this one episode where um and those who don't know we're talking about so many sci-fis and i feel like you just have to like give like a too long didn't read um you know like uh, Balster galactica is like you know like all of these plants have been nuked by these uh you know 
alien, not aliens, that these robots called Cylons. And then um, the people on these ships are, you know, going and flying to try and find um, a new home, which is uh, supposedly Earth. And the, the Cloud Nine... Um, you know, it's this place where people can go and relax, you know, it's like you have people kind of taking care of you and, uh, you know, waiting to every need, every need, but there's also like this illicit economy of like drugs and slash medicines that, um, uh, has kind of fostered kind of out of, uh, cloud nine. Cause yeah, like, you know, being on this long-term voyage where you don't know if you're ever going to actually make it to where you're going is like kind of, stressful and you know the um there's the show like has to decide whether like an illegal economy should like exist or not um of these um uh, uh drugs and like the decision kind of ends up being like yes like you know you like you know people do need to kind of get out of um their heads kind of sometimes in this kind of miserable um situations but like the, the the cloud nine kind of fantasy i feel like is also a very 70s kind of thing it's like the what, what are those domes called geodesic like yeah but like you know the um like in the show like you know like disney world is like built like based on this like fantasy of like the uh, they're geodesic domes but they're like these big like white um they're almost like terrariums yeah, um, I know what you're talking this, this about. This is such a great example of what I was talking about earlier because Battlestar Galactica is a reboot from a 70s TV yeah. show. You know, and and their their futuristic disco in the 70s version is just like like a disco. You know what I mean? Like their futuristic <laughs> music is just like shitty <laughs> disco, you know. It's so it's like that that lack of imagination, but if if we think about like we we should have this future that we're imagining that's a, a disruption, a, a break away from capitalism. And so hopefully we'll stop thinking of ourselves as separate and apart from nature and that production has to either extract from and kill nature or be removed from nature. And so we would have spaceships that don't have a place where you go to remember nature, but would just have nature. You know, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, the sci-fi writer, has imagined this a lot, you know, like um, hollowing out asteroids and using the inside of them, filling them with atmosphere, you know, farming on all of the interior walls, um, you know, spinning them to create uh, the illusion of gravity through centrifugal force. So it creates all these Earth-like um, feelings. So people aren't in microgravity, aren't extracted and moved away from nature. I think it's a, it's sort of like a recognition. His science fiction is a recognition that people can't survive outside of nature and that's like something we have to reckon with right now is that we build these super alienating environments where we don't know nature and that that leads to that sense of alienation and loss and trauma i think so like our imagined future we should think of nature but we should also think that we're going to still be hopefully thinking in a decolonial way so that we're not going to go terraforming every planet that we run into trying to um like re-massage it into a version of of earth um, Kim Stanley Robinson, also in the Mars trilogy, talks a lot about the debates around what to do with Mars, you know, whether to make it like Earth or leave it red or whatever. I mean, I think the major terraforming effort of the future is probably going to be terraforming Earth, which is making Earth back into an Earth-like system. You know, so it's like that that may be the true science fiction of the future is that we're all working to use technology and whatever else to make this place habitable. 
that or even um uh what you made me think of when you you said that was like this like elon musk uh space link um thing that's like going up and like making it actually harder to see um stars um yeah like you know like at some point like we're gonna have so much shit space up around our planet yeah all this fucking space junk that's like up around our planet that like we won't even be able to see them the night sky like the, you know this 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 kind of you know um so there's something you know kind of drug-like in a, a, a an abstract kind of sense about you know even just kind of staring up at that and knowing that like you know like going like out of the city for example and going somewhere where you can see like all the stars um, oh my god you know? I, I'll, I'll give you one on the on the, the psychedelics is that um i went to the olympic peninsula um and walked on this flat part of the beach like we had a fire and we were camping there and at night we the beach was very flat and the tide came in and we were on mushrooms and so there was phosphorus in the waters which are are glowing and so we were walking on what seemed like a mirror and so the stars and the milky way was reflected under our feet and then there were also phosphorus things like floating and glowing around and it was like the closest to being in space that i have ever been but it made me realize it's hard to even imagine space when you can't ever see it you know like mostly i've lived in cities mostly i've never seen that stuff you know and so i was just like how can we even how can we even make science fiction really when this is such an abstraction to us when the actual moment of like beholding all of this shit just blows your mind when you've been a urban kid and you've just not uh, really seen it very much and i feel like in some ways too like the root of really loving and imagining science fiction is understanding some science too so I feel like the more and more people are just like education is emphasized, but also like people just aren't given the capacity to really imagine and explore these interests. You just lose the, the, like the fertile ground for them. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. It takes me right out of science fiction when they're all walking around on the ship and it's like, there's no explanation for the gravity. Yeah. You know, like the, cause the explanations are pretty simple. Like you can just spin the thing or whatever. And they just don't bother, you know, like you, you have Captain Picard walking around on the bridge of the Enterprise that looks like a furnished basement rec room. <laughs> you know what I mean? With shag carpeting and like a little neon trim around his office and stuff. And they have a boardroom, like right <laughs> off the bridge is a fucking boardroom, you know, and you're just like, well, whose imagination is this? This is terrible. <laughs> uh it kind of, uh, I, I've heard people talk about this before, interestingly, in terms of fashion, kind of like the idea that when films are made, they st even if they're historical, even if they're sci-fi or whatever, they still need to appeal to the audiences that are going to go buy the tickets. So that's why you get like Titanic with Kate Winslet's dressed in like perfect period garb, but with 1998 makeup. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> but like that was a like a marketing decision made. Um, and so I, I think it's especially funny that you bring that up because you can think of like, like, especially early episodes of Star Trek looked exactly like what was like trendy furnishing. Oh, yeah. Like, like the 1968's yeah. beehive that the, yes. the nurse had to wear, the Federation <laughs> oh, issue miniskirts. And yeah. Uhura's hair <laughs> yeah. is exactly, it's perfect late 60s. You're totally yeah. right. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, um, the the last things we wanted to talk about is um, these various types of drugs that were mentioned by people on on Twitter. Um, and Garth, would you want to do um, 
any of, of the, these drugs or these routes of administration. Um, Would, you Would you do the drug? Would you do this drug? What is your drug of choice? Um, and the first one we have um, here, which was brought up by um, a couple of different people, um, but Alex Grenier Combat Parapsych, it's the Twitter handle, um, who seems to be have a lot of kind of sci-fi oriented stuff, was uh, Gleemanex, uh, which is, doesn't really come from a sci-fi. It's from uh, Kids in the Hall Brain Candy, uh, which I watched the movie last night um, just to get some CanCon um, into my into my life. Um, and the, <laughs> so the the pitch for this drug is that Gleemanex um, makes you feel like it's seventy two degrees in your head all the time. Um, and the effects of this drug um, are that it cures quote unquote depression. Um, making everyday life feel like the best memory you've ever had. Um, and it's the only antidepressant guaranteed to make you feel great, um, no matter what your pain. And you can never feel depressed again um, when you take Gleeminex. I just love 72 degrees in your head all the time. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that's 22 degrees Celsius, right? Um yeah, That's, it's it's room temperature. It's room temperature in your head all the time. I was just gonna say. I gotta say for <laughs> for the climate apocalypse for the summer that oh. I've just lived through, which is the worst one I've ever known in BC. We had three pretty severe heat waves. One was called a heat dome, which is a phrase I'd never heard before, which killed over <laughs> five hundred people because it was so hot here. It burned one town to the ground. We had a city in British Columbia, it, which is considered the north, that went to fifty degrees. Uh, Celsius, which is, I don't know, a million degrees Fahrenheit or something. So like if it feels like room temperature all the time, because the, if the future is going to be this fucking heat crime, then like, uh, yeah, maybe that's all right. Maybe I'd try it. Maybe when it's like huh. fucking 40 degrees in my apartment, I'm trying to record a podcast next summer. I will take some Gleemanex. Yeah, watch out though. So side effects um, may include um, turning um from the lead singer of a metal band into a, like a pop folk star. Um, That's okay. Because just, like you're, just you're, growing you feel, older does that to you too. You, you feel 72, like everything is just like content bliss. Like um, I'm trying to think of the uh, Mumford and Sons as the... The first you turn into the lead singer of Mumford and Sons. Yeah. <laughs> That's the side effect. Um, <laughs> everyone becomes Anya. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and then eventually becoming comatose, stuck repeating the best memory in your head for the rest of your life. Uh, Interesting. Um, so it's so 72 degrees all the time. Your music gets lamer and you repeat old stories. It does sound a little bit yeah. like growing older to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like in the in the movie, they even put like they, they start designing like a home, the, the comatorium. <laughs> for, for oh, putting, I wonder for if this is where um, where that uh, record Deloused in the Comatorium comes from. Hey. Sounds like a likely suspect. Yeah. I, uh, I was just going to say, this also sounds a whole lot like San Junipero from Black Mirror. Have y'all seen that? It's the episode ever, where you can be uploaded to a cloud to relive like your teenage years after you're dead. It's the horrible. idea of heaven existing on earth. 
Why would I, who, who would want to relive their teenage years? But it's like an idealized version of it. So like if you were a teen in the 1980s, like you would just be like the coolest girl at like some 80s club dancing to Duran Duran for the rest of your life. Anyway. Uh, sounds- <laughs> so Sorry, basically, I got, I got distracted by looking up which came first. <laughs> Mars Volta record or the Kids in the Hall film, and the Kids in the Hall have it. So Ooh, Mars wow. Volta ripped off Kids in the Hall, I guess. Or Comatorium just sounds like a cool word that people can it, come to. I mean, it is a pretty Comatorium cool term. does sound like a cool term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Fact. But uh, and then so Gleeminex like, is a yak. A yes. Yeah, Gleeminex yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, I do Gleeminex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other one. So you brought up the hypo spray. So I was figuring you could maybe describe what this hypospray does. So it's like a Star Trek, you know, they, the Dr. Bones or whoever the medical doctor is, Dr. Crusher or something is always has to give somebody some kind of injection of a, of something to help them some space medicine or something like that. And they don't even roll up the sleeve or use a tourniquet or they just pick up this device and it goes and somehow the medication gets into them and they call it a hypospray. And I've, uh, you know, being an intravenous drug user for most of my life, I've collapsed all my veins and, you know, it takes me a long time to find a vein that works. And it's just like a big bloody pain in the ass. So um, to have something that goes right in there, that's great. I mean, I know some people talk about, they love the ritual of cooking the dope and drawing it up. No, 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 not me. You know, like I just like getting the dope into your brain. And if there's like a, a, a better, uh, better syringe, a future space syringe, uh, let's try it. Um, yeah, we were now, talking about another. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go. No, no, no. You. I was just going to say that there is a jet injector, which is a real thing, but and that the they have like a military application to basically blast vaccine into people. But it, doing some research for this episode, there was a lot of issues with it. What kind of explain? Yeah. yeah. So like blast vaccine into unwilling people. No, well, into, like, into soldiers. Yeah. Like, but it's almost like an assembly line thing because they just have so many people to get through. Oh, oh, it's I like see. a, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's an expedition thing. But this would be intramuscular, not intravenous. So it, it'd right. be like, you need yeah. some, some AI targeting your veins, you know, uh, to shoot it right in there. Yeah, yeah. They're called jet injectors. And cause I remember hearing about them. I was like, why don't we have these like in a civilian context, they have issues, but right. well, my first, that'd be a my really first cool thought with them was like HIV. HIV? Um, uh, I've been reading this book about the the military and their attempts to make like super soldiers for this book review I said I was going to do for someone a long time ago and I still haven't finished the book the guy talks about yeah getting these gen injectors uh, getting like max vaccination in the military and like rather than like having like you walk up to get your shots from like these two doctors on either side, you kind of get shoved between them as you're, you're kind of walking. And so like you get one injection and then you get pushed forward and then an injection into the other arm um, so that it hurts and uh, leaves a a scar. Um, And it's like the, uh, the way the author talks about, it's like the the way that the military first makes its mark on the the soldier's body. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it seems very different than this hypo spray, which sounds fun and uh you know enjoyable and not part of the military maybe but how do you feel about the the hypo spray but like um what what if you could have like a like a a drug implant or um 
This other recommendation that someone gave was um, this sci-fi series called The Culture Series. Um, and uh, in The Culture Series, the um, uh, the citizens could like opt for having drug glands <laughs> in their lower skull um, that um, could be secreted at will. Um, that could change mood or per, uh, perception. And like the idea was that like they were, you know, these, the glands are kind of meant to secrete, you know, medical needs, but everyone, you know, kind of on the download uses them for recreational drug use. Um, and so like, if you had the option between like, you know, this, these implants, drug glands, <laughs> that's a great word. And uh, the hypo spray, uh, you know, Oh, I what think the hypo spray. I'd stick with the hypo spray. Like uh, the the implanted drug gland to me sounds a little bit like sublocate, which is what we already have. Which is you know, uh, someone gets a shot and it uh, prevents you or tries to prevent you from doing heroin for a month. You know, sometimes the courts put these in people. It's you know, suboxone by yeah. month injection. And I know the difference with the drug gland is you can do it by will, but you know. Um, I can imagine in the future you're like, oh, your um, your bill is overdue for your uh, software upgrade to your um, your what do you call it your drug gland, and now it's just going to shoot out naloxone into your system for all day, or you're going to be like dope sick, or it's going to like fire Tabasco sauce into your veins or something, you know, like <laughs> like I can just imagine, you know, if you think about. Uh, cars right now, Tesla is like, you have to keep paying your software subscription or it turns into a brick, you know, like what happens if your drug, drug gland, your brain stops functioning and you're just in a shitty mood forever, whatever. Yeah. And I, I mean, I haven't, I, admit, I have to read the sci-fi clearly, um, you know, so I can talk more about these. I'm, I'm, I, I love, I love the idea. I don't like the implants. They, I just feel like, like, you know, it's like one of those Elon Musk kind of things where it's like, you know, like, you get all that, like, kind of like what you're saying, but like the drug lines sound like they're kind of like, they're more of just like prosthetics that are like, like that are attached to you. So no Wi-Fi required. Didn't you say uh, at the base of your brain? Um, they were supposed to come from the tissue of the skull, but it was like yeah. a bioengineering thing. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. you do it first and tell me how it works out. Yeah, all right. That's that's, fair. You're like, I'll I'll <laughs> stick to my classic hypo spray. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah call, call me old school, but you know, anything anything after the 23rd century is just too modern for me. <laughs> I mean, it's a good point that if we're gonna like allow others to put things in us, there's no reason it can't be weaponized. So, especially considering the current context. Yeah, but people, people like, like there, there's like definitely scenes in, in in Star Trek where like someone uses like the hypo spray thing to like put someone unconscious like temporarily, and so like, you know, like you know, there's there's trade offs to having this kind of easy access for sure, but it's, definitely like, you know, glands, it's a little more invasive, you know, <laughs> for sure. Well, it's more not commitment. the drug; it's the person and the yeah. intent behind it. <laughs> Uh, that would be especially cool too if you could aim and like target hypo spray at a vein. Ideally, uh, I don't know. I never, I never, I'm not like a Star Trek fan enough to know whether it's intravenous or intramuscular. You know, I don't I'm think sure they ever some... address it, to be honest. Yeah. I think but, it's, yeah. I always assumed it was like sub cute because we, we were talking about this before, um, as we, as we did our prep, um, for this episode, um, was that, um, 
like because like you know like 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 opioids and like um ketamine and some other drugs like can be done like intramuscularly or subcutaneously i mean like obviously there, there are reasons people prefer intravenous it's just like you know those those options kind of do exist but they, like you can't you can't i am like you know like a, a stimulant or something like that and so like does like the does the hypospray get around that like you know is there like future formulations mm -hmm. that like you know this isn't a barrier anymore like what's going on here also uh, we're in space right and maybe we have like we're more to all together collectively so maybe the crew votes and they're just like hey we want to get fucked up tonight on stimulants so like everywhere except for the bridge uh just pump it into the atmosphere you know and the people on the bridge can be stone cold sober and pilot the ship or something like that and everybody else can get off their ass on on stimulants you know again with like this collective and like community space again mm -hmm. yeah. all right cool or maybe be like different rooms you know like a um like I yeah. went to this, uh, I went to this rave in the UK where they had all these different rooms and there was like someone spinning like weird rockabilly and like then another room where it's regular EDM and a trance room. And they had all these different rooms. It was like an old abandoned school. So it was like these different, like what would have been classrooms in the gymnasium. Right. So maybe your spaceship is like that, like different rooms have different atmospheres and you go to this, this one deck, if you want to go down and the other deck is up and there's a deck for side and it's all like, <laughs> atmosphere, right. And if you're a poly drug user, you just hang out on the elevator. Or you're like, just going up and down between the decks. I don't know. I think we need to send like people with a real sense of adventure into space because we're going to encounter new substances, you know, like we're going to go to some planet and find some weird powder and you got to send like a 10 year old boy, you know, the same kind of kid that would snort a line of the fun dip powder or whatever, <laughs> or like the kid who snorts gel. I guess I was that kid, but like, you know, someone like that, who will just be like, yeah, sure. I'll try some and then see what happens. Maybe you need to send a few because they'll probably be like dying. You know, so they'll they'll be the red shirts that wear that uniform and they'll go try <laughs> yeah. that. They're like, oh no, that wasn't a drug. That was like the thing that makes your head fall off. But next the red we'll send shirts another kid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is like uh, I feel like this is a true like test it before you ingest it kind of you know situation, right? <laughs> right. But we won't have the mass spectrometer on the ship that can measure like some element that we've never met before, you know yeah I mean, completely blind. But it's also like that they always go in in like star trek and all these places they always go to some planet that's got some plant that like puffs out something that makes everyone feel yeah. good and fall in love with each other and read poetry and they're not working so the ship is you know they're not communicating back up to the main ship or they're not doing something i think there was an old british sci-fi show called space 1999 that, that that happened on and also in star trek and also i think there's a few you know, they go to the planet and everything's just too good. Everything's just too nice. And, and what we learn, the moral is like, now oh, you can't really feel too good or you won't bother working, you know, and we all, someone's got to clean the spaceship or something like that, you know? So it's, it's like the same lesson, the same lesson. It's like really fun and really nice. And then it's like too good, which is, I suppose the uh, Aldous Huxley's point about Soma too. I feel like in next generation, it's like the, the, it's like the utopian planet is like this, like really fun place where everyone's in togas everywhere. And then like, it's like, it's all fun and games and everyone loves each other and there's no crime except like, don't go into this one part of like our, our planet. And if you do, then it's the fucking death penalty for you. And it's like, I really feel like, you know, if you're going to have guests come somewhere 
to your planet. Like you, you should mark off, you know, those areas. Like, you know, what happens, what happens in this part of the planet? Like what's there? I, know, I, I, um, I, I can't remember the rest of the episode. He get like he goes <laughs> to this like court of this like higher are, level beast. Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> this is this is why I'm not a not. A you are writer. a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there, there's this like on like, crackdown. What we would being. do? What we would do on crackdown right now? is I would go just read it and then I'd record a punch in and it would seem like I knew what I was talking about the whole time. <laughs> the listener would never know. <laughs> Who says I won't do that later? Yeah, yeah there I you was go. just going to say. <laughs> this whole conversation will never be heard by anyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, was there anything, um, any last kind of final thoughts? Uh, no, I just, I mean, thanks for having me. And I guess in the future, I would sign off by seeing, saying like, um, be safe, check the seals on your spacesuit and keep six. Thank you for listening to the drug features podcast. More information and resources about this episode are in our show notes. If you want to help us imagine a different future, you can support us at patreon.com slash drug futurisms, or give us a good rating on iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. After all, we can only imagine the future together. This podcast is made by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo. The art was made by Brooke Payne. And our music by Jake Goodison. And remember, another drug world is possible.